you know, if there's one thing I'm really talented at, it's procrastinating. So yeah, basically, I have this kind of short book called, I don't know, The Epic of Gilgamesh. <laughs> and I was thinking of maybe reading it to you guys, because I need to procrastinate on something. So yeah, let's begin. Wait, first, the intro needs to play. Okay, now that that's over with, let's begin the story. It is an old story, but one that can still be told about a man who loved and lost a friend to death and learned he lacked the power to bring him back to life. It is the story of Gilgamesh and his friend Enkidu. Friend. That's an interesting word. Gilgamesh was king of Urk, a city set between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in ancient Babylonia. Enkidu was born on the steppe, where he grew up among the animals. Gilgamesh was called a god and a man. Enkidu was an animal and man. It is the story of their becoming human together. As king, Gilgamesh was a tyrant to his people. He demanded from an old birthright the privilege of sleeping with their brides before the husbands were permitted. Sometimes he pushed his people half to death with work rebuilding Urk's walls and then without an explanation let the walls go unattended and decay and left his people dreaming of the past and longing for a change. They had grown tired of his contradictions and his callous ways. They knew his world was old and cluttered with spoiled arts that they defended but could not revive. Enkidu was ignorant of oldness. He ran with the animals, drank at their springs, not knowing fear or wisdom. He freed them from the traps the hunters set. A hunter's son one day saw Enkidu opening a trap. The creature was all covered with hair, and yet his hands had the dexterity of man's. He ran beside the freed gazelle like a brother, and they drank together at a pool like two friends, sharing some common journey, not needing to speak, but just continued. Gilgamesh was a god like man alone, with his thoughts in idleness except for those evenings when he went down into the marketplace to the family house to sleep with the virgins, or when he told his dreams to his mother, Ninsun. The hunter listened to his son's description of Enkidu and was both angry and afraid. He told his son to go to Urk and to tell what he had seen to Gilgamesh and to ask him to send a prostitute who would sleep with Enkidu and make the animals ashamed of him. Gilgamesh would understand, for he was king. The hunter's son made the day's journey to Urk and told what he had seen to Gilgamesh, showing him his father's anger and his fear, and praising the strength of the strange preacher who had come to his father's plains and freed the animals from the traps and lived as one of them and threatened the livelihood of men. Gilgamesh listened, 
but he had heard so many stories of the wondrous creatures of the forest and the steppe that he could hardly be aroused. He sent the prostitute, but then forgot what he had listened to. The hunter left the prostitute alone. At the spring, when evening came, Enkidu appeared among the animals and drank with them and rested at their side. When he awoke, he saw a strange creature, unlike any he had seen before. Standing near the water, its skin smooth, tan, and hairless except for its legs, and between its legs, he wanted to touch it, but then it made sounds he had never heard, not like the sounds of his friends, the animals, and he was afraid. The prostitute came close to him, and the animals withdrew. I'm contemplating whether or not to skip the next part due to family unfriendliness, but since this is an ancient text and I would prefer to keep it whole, I'm just going to read it and, like, I trust any of you younger folks to, like, skip, so, yeah. She took his hand and guided it across her breasts and between her legs and touched him with her fingers, gently and bent down and moistened him with her lips, then drew him slowly to the ground. When he rose again, looking for his friends who had gone, he felt a strange exhaustion, as if life had left his body. He felt their absence. He imagined the gazelles raising the dry dust, like soft brush floating across the crest of sand, swiftly changing direction, and the serpent asleep at the springs, slipping effortlessly into the water, and the wild she-camel vanishing into the desert. His friends had left him to a vast aloneness he had never felt before. The lions returned to the mountains, the water buffalo to the rivers, the birds to the sky. Gilgamesh woke anxiously from a dream and said to Ninsun, I saw a star fall from the sky, and the people of Urk stood around and admired it. And I was jealous. I tried to carry it away, but I was too weak, and I failed. What does it mean? I have not dreamed like this before. She said, Your equal is the star, which fell, as if a sign from heaven had been sent which is too heavy but which you will try to lift and drive away and fail. But I have never failed before, he interrupted. Her surprised himself at his anxiety. It will be a person, she continued, speaking in her somber monotone, a companion who is your equal, in strength a person loyal to a friend, who will not forsake you and whom you will never wish to leave. Gilgamesh was quiet at this inter interpretation of his dream. That night, he had a vision of an axe. Which does this mean, he said on waking. The people stood around the axe. When he tried to lift it, when I tried to lift it, lift it, I failed. Not worthy. I feel such tiredness, I cannot explain, Ninsen said. 
The axe is a man who is your friend and equal. He will come, a graceful man, who will lift you out of tiredness. Oh, Ninsun, I want your words to be true. I have never known such weariness before, as if some life in me has disappeared or needs to be filled up again. I am alone, and I have longed for some companionship. My, pe my people also have grown tired of my solitude. The prostitute slept beside Enkidu until he was used to her body. She knew how gradually one stops, desiring to run with old companions. One morning she awoke and said to him, Why do you still want to run with the animals? You're a human. You're a human being now, not like them. You are like a god, like Gilgamesh. I will lead you to Urk, where you belong, to the temple of Anu, where Gilgamesh rules over his people and is strong, and you will recognize yourself in him. As in a clear stream, you will see your own face, a man's face. He listened to her words and to the unfamiliar names of Anu, Gilgamesh, and he felt weak. He let her clothe him in a portion of her scarlet robe and led him to a shepherd's house, when, where he was welcome and taught to eat bread and drink the liquor that the shepherds drank. His soul now, his soul felt new and strange, and his face was hot with sweat and somehow gay. The prostitute shaved his shaved the long hair off his body. She washed him with perfumes and oils, and he became a man. At night, he stood watch for the shepherds against the lions so they could sleep. He captured wolves for them, and he was known as their protector. Interesting character development. One day, a man who was going to Urk stopped to eat at the shepherd's house. He told them he was hurrying to the marketplace to choose for himself a virgin bride, whom Gilgamesh, by his birthright, would sleep with before him. Enkidu's face was pale. He felt a weakness in his body. At the mention of their king, he asked the prostitute, Why should this be his birthright? She answered, He is king. Enkidu entered Urk. The prostitute walked behind him. The marketplace filled with people. When they heard that he was coming, people said, He looks like Gilgamesh, but he is shorter and also stronger. He has the power of the steppe, the milk of the animals he sucked. They hailed him as the equal of their king. At night, when Gilgamesh approached, the market square to go into the family house, where the bride was to be chosen. Enkidu stood, blocking his way. Gilgamesh looked at the stranger and listened to his people's shouts of praise for someone other than himself. And he lunged at Enkidu. They fell like wolves at each other's throats, like bulls bellowing and horses gasping for breath that have run all day desperate for rest and water. Crushing the gate they fell against, the dry dust billowed in the marketplace and people shrieked. The dogs raced in and out between their legs 
A child screamed at their feet that danced the dance of life, which hovers close to death. And quiet suddenly fell on them. When Gilgamesh stood still, exhausted, he turned to Enkidu, who learned, who leaned against his shoulder and looked into his eyes and saw himself in the other, just as Enkidu saw himself in Gilgamesh. In the silence of the people, they began to laugh and clutch each other in their breathless exhaustion. Chapter 2 Gilgamesh spoke then. We go to kill the evil one, Humbaba. We must prove ourselves more powerful than he. Enkidu was afraid of the forest of Humbaba and urged him not to go, but he was not as strong as Gilgamesh in argument, and they were friends. They had embraced and made their vow to stay together always, no matter what the obstacle. Enkidu tried to hold his fear, but he was sick at heart. I feel the weakness that I felt before come over my body as if I tried to lift my arms and found that they were hollow. It is Humbaba who has taken your strength, Gilgamesh spoke out, anxious for the journey. We must kill him and end his evil power over us. No, Enkidu cried. It is the journey that will take away our life. Don't be afraid, said Gilgamesh. We are together. There is nothing we should fear. I learned, Enkidu said, when I lived with the animals never to go down into that forest. I learned that there is death in Humbaba. Why do you want to raise his anger? Only half listening, Gilgamesh thought aloud about the cedars he would climb. How can we climb those cedars? Enkidu tried to sway his thoughts. Humbaba never sleeps. He is the guardian whom Inili has commanded to protect the sacred trees by terror. I have learned his sound is like a flood sound, slowly forming in the distance, then enveloping all other sounds. Even the cries of animals cannot be heard. Trees are hushed. The wind still moves them back and forwards, but noiselessly. And when one senses violence gathering its forces, soon there will there is no sound apart from it, not even one's own thoughts in terror. I have learned that from his mouth springs fire that scorches the earth, and in a moment there is nothing left alive. No tree, no insect, as in a dream, that makes one wake and cry, out of the pain one cannot find the source of, out of nothing, one wakes and everything has vanished. I have learned Humbaba is the face of death. He hears each insect crawling towards the edge of the forest. He twitches and it dies. Do you think he could not hear two men? Why are you worried about death? Only the gods are immortal anyways, sighed Gilgamesh. What men do is nothing, so fear is never justified. What happened to your power that, w- 
that once could challenge an equal mine. I will go ahead of you, and if I die, I will at least have the reward of having people say he died in war against Humbaba. You cannot discourage me with fears and hesitations. I will fight Humbaba. I will cut down his cedars, tell the armorers to build us two-edged swords and double shields, and tell them I am impatient and cannot wait long. Thus Gilgamesh and Enkidu went together to the marketplace to notify the elders of Urk who were meeting in their senate. They too were talking of Humbaba, as they often did, edging always in their thoughts towards the forbidden. The one you speak of, Gilgamesh addresses them, I now must meet. I want to prove him not the awesome thing we think he is, and that the boundaries set up by gods are not unbreakable. I will defeat him in the cedar forest. The youth of Urk need this fight. They have grown soft and restless. The old men leaned a little forward, remembering old wars. A flush burned on their cheeks. It seemed a little dangerous, and yet they saw their king was seized with passion for this fight. Their voices gave the confidence his friend had failed to give. Some even said Enkidu's wisdom was a sign of cowardice. You see, my friend, laughed Gilgamesh, the wise of Urk have outnumbered you. Amidst the speeches in the hall that called upon the gods for their protection, Gilgamesh saw his friend that pain he had seen before and asked him what it was that troubled him. Enkidu could not speak. He held his tears back, barely audible, he said. It is a road which you have never traveled. The armorers brought to Gilgamesh his weapons and put them in his hand. He took his quiver, bow, and axe, and two-edged sword, and they began to march. The elders gave their auster blessing, and the people shouted, Let Enkidu lead. Don't trust your strength. He knows the forests. The one who goes ahead will save his friend. May Shmash bring you victory. Enkidu was resolved to lead his friend, who was determined but did not know the way. Now Gilgamesh was certain with his friend beside him. They went to Ninsun, his mother, who would advise them on how to guard their steps. Her words still filled his mind. As they started their journey, just as his mother's just as a mother's voice is heard. Sometimes in a man's mind, long past childhood, calling his name, calling him from sleep, or from some pleasurable moment, on a foreign street, when every trace of origin seems left, and one has almost passed into a land that promises a vision or the secret of one's life, when one feels amongst God, almost God enough, 
to be free of voices. Her voice calls out like a voice from childhood, reminding him he once tossed in dreams. He could still smell the incense she had burned to Shamash, saying, Why did you give my son a restless heart, and now you touch him with this passion to destroy Humbaba, and you send him on a journey to battle, to a battle he may never understand, to a door he cannot open. You inspire him to end the evil of the world which you abhor, and yet he is a man for all his power and cannot do your work. You must protect my son from danger. She had put out the incense and called Enkidu to her side and said, You are not my son, but I adopt you and call upon the same protection now for you I called upon for Gilgamesh. She placed a charm around his neck and said, Oh, let Enkidu now protect his friend. These words still filled their minds as the two friends continued on their way. After three days, they reached the edge of the forest where Humbaba's watchman stood. Suddenly, it was Gilgamesh who was afraid, Enkidu who reminded him to be fearless. The watchman surrounded his warning. The watchman sounded his warning to Humbaba. The two friends moved slowly towards the forest gate. When Enkidu touched the gate with his hand, his hand felt numb. He could not move his fingers or his wrist. His face turned pale like someone witnessing a death. He tried to ask his friend for help, whom he had just encouraged to move on, but he could only stutter and hold out his paralyzed hand. It will pass, said Gilgamesh. Would you want to stay behind because of that? We must go down into the forest together. Forget your fear of death. I will go before you and protect you. Enkidu followed close behind. So filled with fear, he could not think or speak. Soon they reached the high cedars. They stood in awe at the foot of the green mountain. Pleasure seemed to grow from fear for Gilgamesh. And when one comes upon a path in woods, unvisited by men, one is drawn near, the lost and undiscovered in him, self. He was revitalized by danger. They knew it was the path Humbaba made. Some called the forest hell, and others paradise. What difference does it make, said Gilgamesh? But night was falling quickly and they had no time to call it names, except perhaps the dark. Before they found a place at the edge of the forest to serve as shelter for their sleep. It was a restless night for both. One snatched at sleep and sprang awake from dreams. The other could not rest because of pain that spread throughout his side. Enkidu was alone with sights he saw brought on by pain and fear as one in deep despair may lie beside his love who sleeps and seems so afraid 
absorbing himself in the phantoms that she cannot see phantoms diminished for one when two can see and stay awake to talk of them and search out a solution to despair or lie together in each other's arms or weep and in exhaustion from their tears perhaps find laughter for their fears but alone and awake the size and nature of the creatures in his mind grew monstrous beyond resemblance to the creatures he had known before the prostitute had come into his life he cried out for them to stop appearing over him emerging from behind the trees with phosphorescent eyes brought on by rain he could not hear his voice but knew he screamed and could not move his arms but thought they tried to move as if a heavy weight he could not raise or wriggle out from under had settled on his chest like a turtle trapped beneath a fallen branch each effort only added per to per per paralysis he could not make his friend his one companion hear gilgamesh awoke but could not hear his friend in agony he still was captive to his dreams which he would tell aloud to exercise i saw us standing in a mountain gorge a rock slide fell onto us and we seemed no more than insects under it and then a solitary graceful man appeared and pulled me out from under the mountain he gave me water and i felt released tomorrow you'll be victorious enkidu said to whom the dream brought chills for only one of them he knew would be released when gilgamesh could not perceive in the darkness he, he, which gilgamesh could not perceive in the darkness for he went back to sleep without responding to his friend's interpretation of his dream did you call me gilgamesh sat up again why did i wake again i thought you touched me why am i afraid i felt my limbs grow numb as if some god passed over us drawing out our life i had another dream this time the heavens were alive with fire but soon the clouds began to thicken death rained down on us the lightning flashes and stopped and everything which rained down turned to ash what does this mean enkidu that you will be victorious against humbaba enkidu said or someone said through him because he could not hear his voice or move his limbs although he thought he spoke and soon he saw his friends asleep beside him at dawn gilgamesh raised his axe and struck at the great cedar when humbaba heard the sound of falling trees he hurried down the path that they had seen but only he had traveled gilgamesh felt weak at the sound of humbaba's footsteps and called to shamash saying i have followed you in the way decreed why am i abandoned now suddenly the wind sprang up the, they saw the great head of humbaba 
like a water buffalo's bellowing down the path. His huge and clumsy legs, his flailing arms thrashing at phantoms in his precious trees. His single stroke could cut a cedar down and leave no mark on him. His shoulders, like a porter's under building stones, were permanently bent by what he bore. He was a sl the slave who did the work for gods, but whom the gods would never notice. Monstrous in contortion, he aroused the two almost to pity. But pity was the thing that might have killed. It made them pause just long enough to show how pitiless he was to them. Gilgamesh, in horror, saw him strike the back of Enkidu and beat him to the ground. Until he thought his friend was crushed to death, he stood still watching as the monster leaned to make his final strike against his friend, unable to move to help him. And then Enkidu slid. Onto, along the ground like a ram making his, its final lunge on wounded knees. Humbaba fell and seemed to crack the ground itself to, into two. And Gilgamesh, as if this fall had snapped him from his days, returned to life and stood over Humbaba with his axe, raised high above his head, watching the monster plead in strangled sobs and desperate appeals the way the sea contorts under a violent squall i'll serve you as i serve the gods humbaba said i'll build you houses from their sacred trees enkidu feared his friend was weakening and called out gilgamesh don't trust him as if there were some hunger in himself that Gilgamesh was feeling. That turned him momentarily to yearn for someone who would serve. He paused, and then he raised his axe higher and swung it in perfect in a perfect arc into Humbaba's neck. He reached out to touch the wounded shoulder of his friend, and late that night he reached again to see if he was yet asleep. But there was only quiet breathing. The stars against the midnight sky were sparkling like Mika in a riverbed. In the slight breeze, the head of Humbaba was swinging from a tree. In the morning when they had bathed and were preparing to return to Urk, Ishtar came, their city's patroness, goddess of love and fruitfulness and war she brought to gilgamesh his royal robes and crown and hinted that the gods had grieved humbaba's loss why should you be chosen as the one to blame she said in her coyness i might persuade my father anu to relent if you marry me that way your kingdom will know peace. Gilgamesh shook off what were to him unwanted dreams. What would I gain by taking you as a wife? Love, she said, and peace. 
just as you loved the lion and gave him pits to fall in, and the horse whose back you wounded with the whip, he shouted back at her, your love brings only war. You are an old fat whore, that's all you are, who once was beautiful perhaps and could deceive, but who has left in men a memory of grief. We outgrow our naivety. In thinking, goddess, return our love. I am tired of your promises, tired as Ishlanu, who has who brought you dates, innocent until you pressed his hand against your breasts, and turned him into a mole, who lived beneath the surface of your earth, unable to dig out to air, feeling in his darkness for that same soft touch he subsided in his insult and turned away to his friend Inkadu. She stuttered she was so enraged and flew to the protection of her father. In his customary calm, wise Anu noted that her sins had been declaimed this way before. She shook in greater rage and said she had no time to listen to reminders from old gods, but only to ask him to make for her the bowl of heaven to destroy this man. I will send him something he would never wish to dream. There will be more dead than living on this earth, a drought that never will relieve. He listened while her anger ran its course, and then reminded her, Men need survival after punishment. Have you stored for them enough grain? She knew her father's weakness for details and said, I thought of that. They will not starve, but a little hunger will replace their arrogance with new desire. Then Anu acceded to her wish. The bowl of heaven descended to the earth and killed at once three hundred men and then attacked King Gilgamesh. Enkidu, to protect his friend, found strength. He lunged from side to side, watching for his chance to seize the horns. The bull frothed in its rage at this dance, and suddenly Enkidu seized its tail and twisted it around until the bull stood still, bewildered and out of breath. And then Enkidu plunged his sword behind its horns into the nape of the bull's neck, and it fell dead. The goddess stood on Urk's walls and cried aloud, Grief to those who have insulted me and killed the bull of heaven. When Enkidu heard Ishtar's curse, he tore the right thigh from the bull's flesh and hurled it in her face and shouted, I would tear you just like this if I could catch you. Then she withdrew among the prostitutes and mourned with them the bull of heaven's death. That night, the wound Enkidu had received in his struggle with Humbaba grew worse. He tossed with fever and was filled with dreams. He woke his friend to tell him what he heard and saw. 
The gods have said that one of us must die because we killed Humbaba in the bowl of heaven. And Nili said, I must die, for you are two-thirds god and should not die. But Shamash spoke for me and called me innocent. They all began to argue, and as if that word touched off a universal rage. I know that they have chosen me. The tears flowed from his eyes. My brother, it is the fever only, said in Gilgamesh. Engadu cursed the gate into Humbaba's forest that had lamed his hand, and cursed the hunter and the prostitute who had led him from his friends, not sensing Gilgamesh's fear at the thought of his own solitude. I can't imagine being left alone. I am less a man without my friend. Gilgamesh did not let himself believe that the gods had chosen one of them to die. The fever reached its height, and like a madman talking to a wall in an asylum, Enkidu cursed the gate as if it were the people he could blame. I would have split you with my axe if I had known that you could wound. Sh Shamash, who called me innocent, I cursed your heart for bringing me to suffer this. He thought he heard Shamash arguing that if the prostitute had never come to him, he never would have known his friend, who sat beside him, now trying to find the gesture to reverse the god's decision or relieve a close companion's pain. Gilgamesh thought he was king, had never looked at death before. Enkidu saw in him a helplessness to understand or speak as if this were the only thing the other had to learn and he to teach. But visions from his sickness made him also helpless as a teacher. All he had to give was being weak and rage about the kings and elders and the animals in the underworld that crowded sleep, about the feathers that grew from his arms in the house of dust whose occupants sat in the dark devoid of light, with clay as, as food, the fluttering of wings, and the substitutes for life, as substitutes for life. The priest and the static sat there too, their spirits gone, each body like an old recluse no longer inhabited its no longer inhabiting its island, like shells one finds among shore rocks, only the slightest evidence of life survived. Gilgamesh knew his friend was close to death. He tried to recollect out loud their life together that had been so brief, so empty of gestures they never felt they had to make. Tears filled his eyes as he appealed to Ninsun, his mother, and to the elders, not to explain but to save his friend, who once had run among the animals, the wild horses of the range, the panther of the steppe. He had run and drunk with them as if they were his brothers. Just now he went with me into the forest of Humbaba and killed the bull of heaven. Everything had life to me, he heard Enkidu murmur, 
the sky the storm the earth water wandering the moon and its three children salt even my hand had life it's gone it's gone i've seen death as a total stranger sees another person's world or as a freak sees whom the gods created when they were drunk on too much wine and had a contest to show off the greatness of the harm that they could do creating a man who had no balls or a woman without a womb a crippled or deliberately maimed child or old age itself blind eyes trembling hands contorted in continual pain a starving dog too weak to eat a doe caught in a trap wincing for help or death the contest rules the one who makes the greatest wretchedness wins for all of these can never fit into the perfect state they made when they were sober these are the things i have witnessed as a man and weep for now for they will have no witness if friends die i see them so alone and helpless who will be kind to them he looked at gilgamesh and said you will be left alone unable to understand in a world where nothing lives any more as you thought it did nothing like yourself everything like dead clay before the river makes the plants burst along its bed dead and he became bitter in his tone tone again because of her she made me see things as a man and a man sees death in things that is what it is to be a man you'll know when you have lost the strength to see the way you once did you'll be alone and wander looking that for life that's gone or some eternal life you have to find he drew closer to his friend's face my pain is that my eyes and ears no longer see and hear the same as yours do your eyes have changed you are crying you never cried before it's not like you why am i to die you'd wander on alone is that the way it is with friends gilgamesh sat hushed as his friend's eyes stilled in the silence he reached out to touch the friend whom he had lost chapter three gilgamesh wept bitterly for his friend he felt himself now singled out for loss apart from everyone else the word enkidu roamed through every thought like a hungry animal through empty layers in search of food the only nourishment he knew was grief endless in its hidden source yet never-ending hunger all that is left to one who grieves is convalence no change of heart or spiritual conversion for the heart has changed and the soul has been converted to a thing that sees how much it costs to lose a friend that loved it has grown past conversion to a world few enter without tasting loss in which one spends a long time waiting for something to move one to proceed it is that inner atmosphere that has an unfamiliar gravity or none at all where words are flung out in the air but stay motionless without an answer hovering about one's lips or arguing back to haunt 
the memory with what one failed to say until one learns acceptance of the silence amidst the new debris or turns again to grief as the only source of privacy alone with someone loved it could go on for years and years and has for centuries for being human holds a special grief of privacy within the universe that yearns and waits to be retouched by someone who can take away the memory of death gilgamesh wandered through the desert alone as he had never been alone when he had craved but not know what he craved the dryness now was worse than the decay the board know nothing of this agony waiting for diversion they have not they have never lost death had taken the direction he had gained he was no more a king but just a man who now had lost his way yet had a greater passion to withdraw into a deeper isolation mad perhaps insane he tried to bring enkidu back to life to end his bitterness his fear of death his life became a quest to find the secret of eternal life which he might carry back and give to his friend he had put on the skins of animals and thrown himself in the dust and now he no longer he longed to hear the voice of one who still used words as revelations he yearned to talk to Unapshtim. Unapshtim. yeah whatever i just said the one who had survived the flood and death itself the one who knew the secret before his lost when approached at night the mountain passes where the lion slept he raised his eyes to sin the moon god and prayed now he expected help from no one he tried to fall asleep despite the sounds of the movements through the trees his chest was tight with needless fear enkidu would have calmed when he arrived at the mountains of mashu whose peaks reached to the shores of heaven and whose roots descended to hell he saw the scorpion people who guarded its gate whose knowledge is awesome but whose glance is death when he saw them his face turned ashen with dismay but he bowed down to them the only way to shield himself against effusions of their gaze the scorpion man then recognized in gilgamesh the flesh of gods and told his wife this one is two-thirds god one-third man and can survive our view then spoke to him why have you come this route to us the way is adrous and long and no one goes beyond i have come to see my father unapishtim <laughs> utnapshim Stim, who ha was allowed to go beyond i want to ask him about life and death to end my loss my friend has died i want to bring him back to life the scorpion people interrupted him and laughed being impatient with such tales and fearful of sentiment no one is able to explain 
No one has gone beyond these mountains. There is only death. There is no light beyond, just darkness. And cold at daybreak, a burning heat. You will learn nothing that we do not know. You will only come to grief. I have been through grief, Gilgamesh screamed. Even if it if there will be more pain and heat and cold, I will go on. Open the gate to the mountain. All right, go on, the scorpion man said, as if in anger with a child who had no re- who had not reached the age of reason. The gate the gate is open, his wife added. Be careful in the darkness. Gilgamesh saw his going frightened them. They only seemed secure. He entered the road of the sun, which was so shrouded in darkness that he could see neither what was ahead of him nor behind. Thick was the darkness, and there was no light. He could see neither what was ahead nor behind. For days he traveled in this blindness without a light to guide him, ascending or descending. He could not be sure, going on with only the companionship of grief, in which he felt Enkidu at his side. He said his name, Enkidu, Enkidu, to quiet his fear, through the darkness where there was no light, and where he saw neither what was ahead nor behind, until before him, when it seemed there was no end to loneliness, a valley came into view, sprinkled with precious stones and fruit-filled vines. Gazing into the valley, he felt overcome with pain, as a man who had been in prison feels his chains at his release from fear. He spoke Enkidu's name out aloud, as if explaining to the valley why he was there, wishing his friend could see the same horizon, share the same delights. My friend Enkidu died. We hunted together. We killed Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven. We were always at each other's sides, encouraging when one was discouraged or afraid or didn't understand. He was this close to me. He held his hand together to describe the closeness. It seemed for a moment he could almost touch his friend, could speak to him as if he were there. Enkidu, Enkidu. But suddenly the silence was deeper than before, in a place where they had never been together. He sat down on the ground and wept. Enkidu. Enkidu. Point of information, I should have brought this up earlier. Brought in, that's not a real word. I should have brought this up earlier, but like, isn't, didn't Gilgamesh meet Enkidu only a few weeks ago? And it's kind of sad when you think about it, because like, Gilgamesh is talking about Enkidu, like, it's been like, his entire, like, his entire life, they've been around each other, but, like, it's sad, because the way it sounds to me, personally, is that, like, Gilgamesh, it seems like he didn't really have any friends or hobbies beforehand, besides, like, sleeping with other people's wives, but, like, it's 
kind of depressing when you think about it that way. Anyways, moving on. As when we can recall so vividly, we almost touch or think of all the gestures that we failed to make. After several minutes, he stood up, explaining only to himself why he had come, to find the secret of eternal life, to bring Angadu back to life, recognizing now the valley was death, to loss known only to himself. This private mumbling made both time and distance pass, until he reached the sea and came up on a ca- cottage, where a barmaid named Siduri lived. He beat the door impatiently, and when she called, Where are you going, traveler? and came to see, she saw him as half-crazed. Cra- half Perhaps he's a murderer, she thought and drew away from him in fear. Why do you draw back like that? he asked. Has grief made me so terrible to look at? Who are you? You are no one that I know. I am Gilgamesh, who killed Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven with my friend. If you are Gilgamesh and did those things, why are you so emaciated and your face half crazed i have grieved is it so impossible to believe he pleaded my friend who went through everything with me is dead no one grieves that much she said your friend is gone forget him no one remembers him he is dead and Ankadu, Gilgamesh called out, help me, they do not know you as I know you. Then she took pity on him and let him enter and lie down and rest. She gave him her bed to fall asleep into and sleep, and rubbed his back and neck and legs and arms when he was coming out of sleep, still muttering about the one thing who went with me through everything. Like those old people who forget their listeners have not lived through their past with them, mentioning names that no one knows, and could do, who I loved so much, who went through everything with me. He died like any ordinary man. I've cried both day and night. I did not want to put him in a grave. He will rise, I know, one day. But then I saw that he was dead. His face collapsed within after several days, like cobwebs I had touched with my finger. She wiped his face with a moist cloth, saying, Yes, 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 as she made him cooler, trying to help him to forget by the steady softness of her flesh. She moved her lips across his chest and caressed the length of his tired body and lay over him at night until he slept. You will never find an end to grieve, to grief by going on, she said to the one half sleeping at her side, leaning forward to wipe the precipitation from his face. 
His eyes were open, though his whole self felt asleep. Far off, alone in some deep forest, planted in his flesh, through which he felt his way in pain without help of friends. She spoke as to a child who could not understand all the futility that lay ahead, yet who she knew would go on to repeat. Repeat, repeat the things men had to learn. The gods gave death to man and kept life for themselves. That is the only way it is. Cherish your rest, the children you may have. You are, a ti- you are a thing that carries so much tiredness. When he arose, she washed his body and dressed him and spoke of pleasures he could find with her instead of going on in foolishness. But he, when he was fully awake, threw off the clothes she put on and dressed again in the dark pelt he had come so far in. Her presence seemed to suffocate him now. He wanted to throw off each pleasurable touch and moment of forgetfulness, to bathe away her memory. To bathe was now more urgent than to sleep. Tell me the only way to Udnapishtim, if you know. Tell me the way to him. I am going. No one has crossed the sea of death to him. Will you? You are impetuous like all the rest. Stay here and sleep. Begin your life again. You've come so far. You need much sleep. He was fully awake with desperate energy. Tell me the way. All right, she sighed. She had despaired him. She had despaired of him already. You may find his boatman, Urshanabi. He has stone images that will show the way. If it can't be arranged for you who are so blind with love of self and with rage to reach the other side, it will be through his help alone. It cannot be if if it cannot be, then turn back. I am still a fool enough to take you in. She turned in anger back to her house and slammed the door, not listening as he screamed at her. I am not blind with self-love, but loss. He felt his head split up with the pain of making himself heard by her, by all the world. It was as if his mind exploded into little pieces. He struck at everything in sight. He hurried with his axe, drawn from his belt down to the shore to find this Arshanabi. Coming upon some stones that stood in his way, he smashed them into a thousand pieces. Arshanabi, a lean old man with gray hair, browned by the brackish water of this his river, laughed at the stranger's folly, and even danced to mock the the crazed man's act. You have destroyed the sacred stones that might have taken you across.
Gilgamesh sat on the ground, his head resting on his drawn-up knees, wondering how much fatigue a man could stand. He raised his head to speak. I know I've broken them. What difference now? I only wish to speak with Utnapchitim to reach his shore. Can you help me? Perhaps, the boatman said, but I have questions to ask first. Why are your cheeks so thin, your eyes full of grief? What have you known of loss that makes you different from other men? Don't ask me to retell my pain, he said. I only want to bring him back to life. Whom? asked Ushinabi, and he laughed at the presumption in this quest. He was my friend, pleaded Gilgamesh, unconscious once again of audience and pain. Recounting flowed from him like music played by someone else. My younger brother who saved me from the bowl of heaven and Humbaba, who listened to my dreams, who shared my pain. Why did he have to die? He would have stayed with me in death. He would not have let me die alone. He was my friend. He stopped, realizing he had not come this far to hear himself, recall the failure of his grief to save, but to find an end to his despair. Which is the way to Untnapstim? I must know. Is it the sea, the mountains? I will go there. I told you, Ushnabi said, the stone images are destroyed. If you had been as reverent with them as with your friend, they might have helped you cross. What else? What else is there? There must be something else. You are exhausting me, the boatman said. I do not think that you will be serene ever or at peace enough for others not to be exhausted by your presence until at last you lose by your own hand the very thing you crave to hold alone don't moralize at me i've no love for images old gods prophetic words i want to talk to Udnapstim. tell me how let me speak with your manager. Take the take your axe in your hand, said Urshanabi. Go down into the forest, cut down a boatload of trees, and set them with bitmen. They will be your poles to push yourself across the sea of death. When Gilgamesh heard this, he went to work, and when the poles were cut and set with bitumen, bitumen the two men boarded Urshanabi's ship and sailed the channel towards the Sea of Death. Now Gilgamesh was alone. The boatman's voice could still be heard, but faintly from the shore. Don't let the waters touch your hand. Take a second pole, a third, a fourth, when each is rotted by the seed of death. 
When he had used each pole but one, he pulled his clothes off his body, and with the last remaining pole, he made a mast, his clothes at sail, and drifted on the sea of death. My dude, you could have done that earlier, but who am I to judge? Utenopstim stood on the other shore. His old and rugged features worn by the seas and deserts he himself had crossed. He wondered why the sacred stones had been destroyed, why the boat was only drifting, and who this the man was who resembled loss itself. Before the ship had touched his shore, he thought, I'm afraid that nothing here can help him. The eyes of Utenopstim seemed so full of hospitality when Gilgamesh awoke from his exhaustion, as if some faces could be doorways into into life one has an image of but never sees. The vista was a strange and beautiful release. Utenopstim was the only one whom he had met on his journey who did not add to his fatigue. Gilgamesh was speaking, but only to relieve his weight of grief, not to demand an understanding. My friend has died so many times in me, and yet he still seems so alive, like a younger brother. Then suddenly, like soft tissue, a dried leaf, I was afraid. Is there something more than death? Some other end to friendship? I came to you whom they called the distant. I crossed the mountains and the shores. I was a blind man, but not one from whom someone in search can draw light. I am so tired, so tired. I've killed bear, hyena, stag, ibex for food and clothes. I barely crossed the sea of death. Utnapshtim raised his hand and touched the shoulder of the younger man and put him at ease. Two things encouraged me to hope, he said, that one can come this far to bring life to a friend and that you understand how we must borrow light from the blind. My own right eye was damaged long ago and my left is slowly decaying friendship is vowing toward immortality and does not know the passing of beauty though take care because it aims for the spirit many years ago through loss i learned that love is wrung from our innermost our inmost heart until only the loved one is and we are not you have known o gilgamesh what interests me to drink from the well of immortality which means to make the dead rise from their graves and the prisoners from their cells the sinners from their sins i think love's kiss kills our heart of flesh it is the only way to eternal life, which should be unbearable if lived among the dying flowers and shrieking faces.
farewells of the overstretched arms of our spoiled hopes. I think compassion is our God's pure act, which burns forever, and be it in heaven or hell, doesn't matter for me, because hell is the everlasting gift of his presence to the lonely heart who is longing amidst perishing phantoms and doesn't care to find any immortality. If not in the pure loneliness of the Holy One, this loneliness which he enjoys forever, inside and outside of his creation, it is enough for one who loves to find his only one signaled in himself. And that is the cup of immortality. Gilgamesh looked into the face of the older man in whom he saw this loneliness. He could still feel the touch of Utnapshtim's hand. Time and space were uneventful now. Nothing inclined him to impatience. They talked together, walked, and sat on, the ro on rocks. The older man seemed pleased to have his company, as if an absent son or other loss had been slightly returned to him. In time, the younger felt he knew him well enough to say, You sometimes seem to have a downcast look, as if the life you have found here still has failed to bring you peace. How did you come to find this world and reach this life? I did not come out of desire like you, said Utnapshtim. I was the choice of others. They walked along the shore, and the old man told his story. There was a city called Shrapak on the bank of the Euphrates. It was very old, and so many were the gods within it. They converged in their complex hearts on the idea of creating a great flood. There was Anu, their aging and weak-minded father, the military Enoli, his advisor, Ishtar, the sensation-craving one, and all the rest. Ea, who was present at their council, came to my house and, frightened by the violent winds that filled the air, echoed all that they were planning and had said. Man of Shurapak, he said, tear down your house and build a ship. Abandon your possessions and the works that you find beautiful and crave, and save your life instead. Into the ship, bring the seed of all the living creatures. I was overawed, perplexed, and finally downcast. I agreed to do all as Ea said, but I protested. What shall I say to the city, the people, the leaders? Tell them, Ea said, you have learned that Inili, the war god, despises you and will not give you access to the city anymore. Tell them, for this Ea will bring the rains. That is what the other god that is the way gods think, he laughed. His tone of savage irony frightened Gilgamesh. Yet gave him pleasure being his friend. They 
only know how to compete or echo. But who am I to talk? He sighed as if disgusted with himself. I did as he commanded me to do. I spoke to them, and some came out to help me build the ship. Of seven stories, each with nine chambers, the boat was cube in shape and sound. It held the food and wine and precious minerals and seed of living animals we put in it. My family then moved inside, and all who wanted to be with us there, the game of the field, the goats of the steppe, the craftsmen of the city came, a navigator came, and then Ye ordered me to close the door. The time of the great rains had come. Oh, there was ample warning, yes, my friend, but it was terrifying still. Buildings blown by the winds for miles like desert brush. People clung to branches of trees until roots gave way. New possessions, now debris, floated on the water with their special sterile vacancy. The riverbank failed to hold the water back. Even the gods cowered like dogs at what they had done. Ishtar cried out like a woman at the height of labor. Oh, how could I have wanted to do this to my people? They were hers. Notice, even her sorrow was possessive. Her spawn that she had killed too soon. Old gods are terrible to look when, at when they weep, all bloated like spoiled fish. One wonders if they understand that they have caused their grief. When the seventh day came, the flood subsided from its slaughter, like hair drawn slowly back from tor tormented face. I looked at the earth, and all was silence. Bodies lay like all wives dead, and in the clay, I fell down on the ship's deck and wept. Why, why did they have to die? I couldn't understand. I asked unanswerable questions, as a child asks when a parent dies, for nothing, only sorrow. Did I make myself believe or hope they might all be swept up in their fragments together and maybe fall again by some compassionate hand? But my hand was too small to do the gathering. I've only known this feeling since when I look out across the sea of death, this pole inside against a littleness, myself waiting for an upward gesture. Oh, the dove, the swallow, and the raven found their land. The people left the ship, but I for a long time could only stay inside. I could not face the deaths I knew were there. Then I received Inili, for Ia had chosen me. The war god touched my forehead. He blessed my family and said, Before this you were just a man, but now you and your wife shall be like gods. You shall live in the distance at the river's mouth, at the source. I allowed myself to be taken far away from all that I had seen. Sometimes, even in love, we yearn to leave mankind. 
Only the loneliness of the old one who never acts like God's is bearable. I am downcast because of what I've seen, not what I still have hope to yearn for. Lost youths restored to life, lost children to their crying mothers, lost wives, lost friends, lost hopes, lost homes. I want to bring these back to them. But now there is you. We must find something for you. How will you find eternal life to bring back to your friend? He pondered busily as if it were just a matter of getting down to work or making plans for an exertion, excursion. Then he relaxed as if there were no use in this reflection. I would grieve at all that may befall you still if I did not know you must return and bury your own loss and build your world anew with your own hands. I envy your freedom. As he listened, Gilgamesh felt tiredness again come over him. The words now so discouraging, the promise so remote, so unlike what he sought. He looked into the old man's face. It seemed changed as if this one had fought within himself a battle he would never know that still went on. They returned to Utnapshtim's house and to his aged wife, whom seemed to Gilgamesh in her scufflings and her faithful silence, like a servant only there to hold the door. He hardly knew her as a person. He had talked only to Utnapshtim, been only with him. Was she all he needed as a companion? Yet when he fell asleep and Utnapshtim remarked to his wife with hostile irony, Look at the strong man who wants life. Sleep follows him like his shadow. She said to her husband, Touch him again and wake him so he can return in peace to his home. She had learned to read her husband's moods. Men are deceitful and incapable of peace, I know, he said. Can he even stay awake with me? Sleep is like death only slothful people yearn for. Bake loaves, he ordered her, and put them at his head, one for each day he sleeps. We'll see how long it is before he wakes. Over her frail protest, the trial was set. After some days, Utnapshtim woke the younger man, who thought he had barely gone to sleep. You've slept for seven days, he said. Look at the dried out loaves my wife has baked. How will you bear eternal life? It is not easy to live like gods. What can I do to win eternal life? The younger pleaded. Wherever I go, even here, I'm drawn back to death. Austerly, Utnapshtim called out to the boatman on the other shore and scolded him for sending Gilgamesh across. Return him to your shore, he called. Bathe him and burn these pelts he wears, which can only remind him of his friend. Let him be fresh and young again. Let the band around his head be changed. Let him return to his city untired. His people need the sight of something new. 
and the appearance of success. His words sounded bitter. I came for wisdom only, shouted Gilgamesh. Don't hurt an old man further with your praise. I have nothing to give you. That will save. Ushnabi crossed in his ship and obeyed. He took the pelts from Gilgamesh, and though the greeting man was too disheartened to protest, when they were taken from him and burned, he cried out as if a festered wound had just been pierced. When it was over, he took, the, he stood in the bow to leave, with only inner traces of his journey. Utnapshtim contemplated him, unable to speak, as if he were afraid of some desire to remain. He looked down at the ground, away from Gilgamesh. His wife whispered to him, saying, He has come so far. Have you forgotten how grief fastened onto you and made you carve some word, some gesture once? Or messed up on that. And made you crave some word, some gesture once? Which Napshtim's face grew tight and then relaxed. As when one is relieved of inner pain by one who sees more deeply than oneself, he looked at the younger man who had come into con his consciousness. Youth is very cruel to an old face, he said in a hushed voice. It looks into its lines for wisdom so touchingly, but there is nothing there to find. Gilgamesh wanted to reach out to tell him he was wrong, sensing suddenly the hours one might spend alone in contemplating oldness, as he himself had spent alone in his spoiled youth, seeing nothing there but time. I know your pain too well to lie, said Utnapshtim. I will tell you a secret I have never told. Something to take back with you and guard. There is a plant in the river. Its thorns will prick your hands as a rose thorn pricks. But it will give you new but it will give to you new life. He heard these words and tried to speak, but rushed instead to the old man and embraced him. The two men held each other for a moment. Then Utnapshtim raised his hand as if to say, enough. And Gilgamesh looked back at him, then hurried off to find the plant. He tied stones to his feet and descended into the river. When he saw the plant of rich rose color and ambrosial, shimmering in the water like a prism of sunlight, he seized it and cut it into his palms. He saw his blood flow into in the water. He cut the stones loose from his feet and rose up sharply to the surface and swam to shore. He was calling out, I have it! I have it! Urshanabi guided the ecstatic man away to the other shore, and when they parted, Gilgamesh was alone again, but not with loneliness or the memory of death. He stopped to drink and rest beside a pool, 
and soon undressed and let himself slip in the water quietly until he was refreshed, leaving the plant unguarded on the ground. A serpent had smelled its sweet fragrance and saw its chance to come from the water and devoured the plant, sh shedding its skin as slew. When Gilgamesh rose from the pool, his naked body glistened and refreshed. The plant was gone. The discarded skin of a serpent was all he saw. He sat down on the ground and wept. This ending is bugging me because Gilgamesh was like this close, this close to completing his quest, but like, uh, that's so sad. Alexa, play Despacito. Chapter four. In time, he recognized this loss as the end of his journey and returned to Urk. Perhaps he feared his people would not share the sorrow that he knew. He entered the city and asked a blind man if he had ever heard the name Enkidu. And the old man shrugged and shook his head, then turned away as if to say it is impossible to keep the names of friends whom we have lost. Gilgamesh said nothing more to force his sorrow upon another. He looked at the walls, a wed at the heights his people had achieved, and for a moment, just a moment, all that lay behind him passed from view. It's kind of ironic, that last bit about forgetting Enkidu, because, by the way, the Epic of Gilgamesh is 4,700 years old, and people like me and you are still hearing the tale of Gilgamesh and his friend Enkidu. So Enkidu was never ever really forgotten at all. So yeah, that's all I have for today. And I hope you guys have a wonderful evening. And yeah, bye!